Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey. hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. It's good to be with you. My name is Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing okay wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Podcast wherever you're listening. I have a great episode for you today. My guest is Isabella Hamad. Her new novel is called Interghost. There were some cases in the in the 70s and 80s where you know plays had to go through the military censor. Sometimes they were interrupted mid scene by the army if they went off script. You know there was this real sense in that period that that theatre could be kind of a powerful tool to rouse a crowd. You know to to get the masses to demonstrate or to awaken uh, an audience to the conditions that they're living in. And I, I think there's something quite interesting about considering theatre having that having that kind of power, which I don't think really we have anymore. I think that that era has passed. So it's also sort of evoking some nostalgia for the for the heyday of, of powerful political theater. Okay, that was Isabella Hamad. Her new novel is called Enter Ghost, available now from Grove Press. Enter Ghost tells the story of Sonia Nasir, a woman of Palestinian descent, an actress who is returning to Israel in the wake of a disastrous love affair. This is Sonia's first time back in Israel since the Second Intifada. She's been gone a long time, and now she is staying in Haifa with her sister Hanin, with whom she has a loving but difficult relationship. And during her time in Israel, Sonia winds up becoming part of the cast of an Arabic-language production of Hamlet in the West Bank. Enter Ghost is a vividly rendered depiction of contemporary Palestine. It is a novel about displacement, diaspora. It's about family, love, art, womanhood, motherhood, relationships, romantic relationships, family relationships. It's about the past and about the deep connections that bind a person to her friends and family, and to a particular place. My conversation with Isabella Hamad is coming up in just a bit. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show is made available free of charge to listeners. I've tried to make this a user-friendly experience, no hassles, no paywalls, but I am counting on regular listeners and people who love this show, people who feel like they get something from this show, people who love literary culture, I'm counting on you to please support this show and the work that I do for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. $1, 3 5 10 20 
It's a sliding scale. You get to choose as you move up the scale. You can get merchandise. I've tried to make it a no-brainer. $1 a month, a dollar in the hat, over at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to get another People t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. If you would like to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can do that at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes, I would really appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find the show. You can watch the Other People podcast on YouTube. Search for the show by name, Other PPL, and when you find the Other People channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. The Other People podcast is on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Follow the show on social media if you so desire. If you have feedback for me, the email address for the program is letters at otherppl.com, and I have a novel out. My latest novel is now one year old. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available right now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It's a work of autofiction. If you would like to explore my psyche, you can read my novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest, once again, is Isabella Hamad. Her new novel, Enter Ghost, is now available from Grove Press. Isabella was born in London. Her writing has appeared in Conjunctions, The Paris Review, The New York Times, and other publications. She was awarded the 2018 Plimpton Prize for Fiction and a 2019 O. Henry Prize. Her first novel, her debut, The Parisian, published in 2019, was the recipient of a Palestine Book Award, the Sue Kaufman Prize for the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and a Betty Trask Award from the Society of Authors in the UK. She was also a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, and she is currently a fellow at Columbia University, its Institute for Ideas and Imagination in Paris. So. I'm very pleased to have Isabella Hamad on the Other People Show for the first time. Her new novel, One More Time, is called Enter Ghost. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Isabella Hamad. I do think that it is interesting to talk about the fact that writing in English, you're inevitably having, you've got multiple audiences. You, you have both an Arab audience that's reading in English um, or reading in the book in translation. And you also have an international audience, an Anglophone audience, etc. So in writing the book, I'm uh, such a book, I'm, I'm walking a line between uh, trying to play for laughs or play for recognition in a, in a Palestinian audience. So uh, there's a lot of kind of playing on tropes of Palestinian literature and uh, Palestinian history, and also to make it welcoming and accessible to a foreign audience. And that is part of it. You know, it's a book about a play. It's a book about performance. It's a book about projecting images about telling narrative, the, the Palestinian narrative. So it's engaging with all those questions simultaneously. So uh, that's something very present in my mind in the, in the writing of such a book. And, and that's part of the, the, the theme, I guess, you know, in, in choosing to write about um, a, the production of a play in Palestine. I, I was interested in theatre in Palestine for quite a long time. That interest started when I saw a film called Anna's Children when I was younger um, when I was a teenager, made by a theatre practitioner called Giuliano Merchamis, which he made about his mother, who had uh, started a, a theatre school for children in Janine refugee camp. And he subsequently turned this into a theatre school called the Freedom, sorry, th a theatre called the Freedom Theatre. And a lot of the way he talked about that theatre was about it being part of the kind of a cultural intifada, so sort of part of the cultural resistance to Israeli oppression. So I was interested in, in that history and also in what theatre as an art form might offer in a regime that's very much about the control of bodies in space. You know, it's an art form that's, that's about crowds, it's about bodies in space. And I felt like there was something I could explore there formally and, and, kind, of, uh, and kind of politically as well. Well, there was, I believe in 2012, uh, a German director who put on uh, an, Arab, an Arabic language performance of Hamlet in the West Bank. Like, was this... Uh, some kind of inspiration to you? Did you use that as any kind of source material? Yeah, that was Thomas Ostermeyer. I actually found out about that production afterwards, although I think it was quite a hit. That was in Ramallah. And there was soil on the stage, or there's he sort of, there's a quite famous version of Hamlet that he, he did, and he brought it to Palestine. 
actually the Hamlet idea came kind of late. I I uh, I thought I might do Macbeth when I was thinking about Shakespeare. I thought Shakespeare's kind of everybody knows a bit of Shakespeare, even if it's kind of basic knowledge. And uh, I thought I'd Palestinianize Macbeth if I was going to do Shakespeare. But then I found out that Hamlet had been banned in the Israeli prisons during the first Intifada because to be or not to be was seen as a call to arms. And, and, then, I, and then I discovered this subsequently, this whole other Arabic tradition of Hamlet, particularly in Egypt. So it felt like it was sort of fertile in these other ways. I could tap into these other resonances. But yeah, so I, I learned about the Thomas Ostermeyer production kind of late. Oh, okay. And let's start uh, with some character overviews, in particular, the protagonist, Sonia. The novel opens with her entering Israel, somewhat ghost-like. Like she's a character who lives between identities and between worlds, which is a theme that I think you explored in your uh, previous novel, The Parisian. And I had to laugh as I was reading the opening of your book because I have been to Israel. And I actually ended up writing about this in my most recent book, but I went there to do book research. And I was writing at the time what I thought was a novel about a a man who's like down on his luck and tries to sell one of his kidneys (laughs) to a stranger in Israel and had very little knowledge of Israel. I was kind of going over there to learn about it because I thought I was going to write about it. I needed to see it. So I naively like went to the airport and I'm standing in line at the El Al check-in, which is the most robust security check-in in in, uh, the world of airlines. And suddenly I'm being interviewed by these people (laughs) and they're like, who are you? You know, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm just a novelist. I'm going over for research. They're like, what's your novel about? I'm like, oh, it's about a guy who sells one of his kidneys for $300,000. They're like, come with me. (laughs) So next thing I know, I'm like, they're, you know, going through my suitcase, the whole thing. So I related to that in a personal way is the point. I did not anticipate it being that robust, but it certainly is. Yeah. I mean, I've obviously Palestinians get a sort of, you know, uh, special treatment at border crossings, if you put it kind of euphemistically. Uh, And I've always thought that actually that in itself is quite theatrical and performative the way the border guards treat you it's always struck me as theater I've always found that helpful in crossing the border to be like this is just theater they're just performing to intimidate you and to make you not want to come back because that's part of the mechanism there when Palestinians who don't have and even Palestinians who do have actually a West Bank ID or an Israeli passport still get this treatment and it's uh it's a lot it's kind of psychological warfare a lot of the time yeah well and there's also in addition to the uh, tensions between Israelis and Palestinians and the pressures brought to bear by the Israeli security forces. There are also, as you depict really well in your novel, a lot of internal divisions and tensions within the Palestinian community. And you refer to, for example, like there's the 48ers. Is that right? 48? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the 48ers and then there's the West Bank Palestinians. For listeners who might not have context, could you just give like a brief description of what that means? Absolutely. So 48 is a, you know, a way Palestinians, usually speaking in Arabic, will refer to the territory that was taken in 1948 in the war and then was, um, you know, the created the state of Israel. Um, Although then obviously Israel's never actually declared its borders. So oftentimes they they also consider the West Bank um, as part of as part of the state. So that's that's a kind of question mark around that. But that's the that's what the you know, kind of within the green line basically that that territory is called forty eight and those Palestinians who managed to stay on that land obviously the seven hundred thousand Palestinians were made to refugees uh, between forty seven and forty nine they stayed and and became citizens of the state so they have Israeli citizenship so this gives them a particular status with regard to Palestinians in the in the occupied territories and I'm as well as Palestinians in Jerusalem actually so Palestinians are are you know they often well, they all have different legal statuses, different uh, different paperwork, different levels of freedom of movement. So part of the book I was trying to, it's almost like a sort of fantasy to put on a play with all of these elements from Palestinian society, including the diaspora, although I, I didn't include Gaza, although I kind of referenced the absence of Gaza in the production, because it wouldn't be really realistic to have somebody from Gaza in a play if I wanted it within within the, the boundaries of historical Palestine uh, as a kind of... Uh, wait, wait, may I interrupt you? May, yeah, and ahead. the reason for that is that travel between Gaza and the West Bank is 
Is that why you would not have somebody from Gaza in the play? No, basically, Gaza, Gaza and Palestinians are, are stuck in Gaza. If they if they manage to get a, a, a visa, or kind of approval, which is rare and very very difficult to get hold of to get out of Gaza, they will go to Jerusalem, to the to embassies, for example. But more or less, Gazans are stuck in Gaza. Yeah. Okay. Um, so so you know a lot of the the way which the Israeli regime functions is through a kind of divide and conquer of the Palestinian population. So so there's a way in which, yeah, the play is a kind of fantasy of unity in that way, in the cultural sphere. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And may I ask a perhaps uh, like naive question about the 48ers or the Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship and Israeli passports? Are they able to vote? Yes, and participate? they are. They are. Okay. Because like, I think when it comes to the issue of Palestinian statehood and like trying to work towards some sort of enduring resolution to this conflict, which has been going on our entire lifetimes and, and preceding our lifetimes, it seems like statehood has to be the thing, at least from my very limited perspective. And I, I, I guess that the fact that there are these 48ers, what you said, 700,000 people who live within. 700,000 became, or over 700,000 became refugees in 1948. So the remainder, oh. which is, I can't remember the percentage, but it's quite a small percentage. So they do have the vote, but they, they, they're not a very big voting body within. They're kind of a pretty small minority. And uh, a lot of them actually, boycott voting because they the system is so the, the cards are so stacked against them that it doesn't make that much of a difference mm, okay um, yeah. so sonia nasir your pro, or our protagonist uh she's from london she is an actress kind of like a mid-tier stage actress successful but not like a wildly famous british actress and she is coming to uh haifa to stay with her sister in the wake of a breakup with her director, Harold, in one of her recent productions. I believe it's The Seagull, is that right? Yeah. And so she enters the country as a kind of person between identities, right? She's part of the diaspora. She has not been back to Haifa since 2000, which I believe marks what the second intifada. Yeah. And the second intifada is, can you just quickly describe that for people who might be like, what is the second intifada? Um, well, the first intifada um, started in the end of 1987 and was the kind of largest uh, grassroots uprising by Palestinians against the against the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, largely. And it ended with the Oslo Accords in the 90s, uh, which which promised the future creation of a Palestinian state, which did not has not materialized. And the second intifada um, was a was a basically an, a second prolonged period of violence which was triggered when Ariel Sharon entered Al-Aqsa Mosque and 
yeah i mean it's a I think that that that's a kind of moment of despair about the the prospects of the Oslo Accords having having you know giving bearing fruits which which a lot of people were hopeful about in the early 90s and it's sort of a turning point about you know a kind of loss of optimism I suppose even though there were there were some people like Edward Said who even at the beginning <laughs> were like Oslo is not going to work this is this is uh this is this is the a handshake between power and the powerless. Hmm. So Sonia returns to Haifa many years after the Second Intifada. And she stays with her sister, uh, Hanin, right? Yeah. Okay, I just had a moment where I was like, that was her name, correct? Yeah. (laughs) And so she stays with her sister and like this novel works on so many different levels. You have Sonia's story on a personal level, her kind of mid-tier career as an actress. She's uh, reeling from her breakup with Harold She's reeling from a divorce with her husband, Marco, which preceded Harold. She had a a very difficult miscarriage and is kind of reeling from that as well. And then she's returning to this place that occupies, I think, such a large part of her identity and her memory, and yet which I think she feels disconnected from uh, a bit intentionally perhaps but also just as a function of being part of the diaspora and living a, a kind of separate life and then there's this the generational shift like the, the home that her grandparents lived in which she would visit in summers as a child has been sold to an israeli buyer and that's a very stark symbolic shift uh, like i think for anybody you know when when your childhood a home or a place that is very important to you as a child changes hands and is no longer part of your family. That can be tough. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, I don't know that symbolism, the symbolism of that seems to represent maybe a larger sentiment that is pervasive. Yeah. I mean, the Palestinian houses are so important, you know, the kind of the symbolism of the house. There's also a famous novella, which the book kind of riffs on called Returning to Haifa by a, a writer and revolutionary called Rassan Kanafani, um, which is about a couple who returned to their house in Haifa after the 1967 war. So suddenly there's freedom of movement between the West Bank and, um, and Jerusalem and the North. So, but in that, in that that's kind of ends on a sort of optimistic note about the future. So there's a sort of riff on that in that Sonia is returning to Haifa, but it, but there's not so much optimism at the beginning and going back to the house, which has been not, been, rather than being lost in the Nakba of 1948, has been sold subsequently. So I sort of was trying to play with those, those, uh, those tropes up there in that way. But Sonia is an ambivalent person. I think that's, you know, where she begins is in a, in a state of ambivalence. And that ambivalence is in part produced by family dynamics. Um, her sister is kind of the opposite of her. Her sister's actually considers herself pretty politically committed um, from a young age. And that they and they they diverge on that point. Sonia kind of just doesn't want anything to do with it. She she recoils from the violence and she's she's like, I have my life in London. This isn't this is nothing to me. So she's returning to Haifa and returning the kind of reckoning with that, with her family history and with her role in in the place. Well, it's interesting too that she has this kind of defiance about her, at least at the outset, where she she's like, I'm on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she like carries that beach towel around and she sort of just wants to be on holiday and to escape from the breakup and the sort of emotional tumult associated with what she left behind in London. And there's a line where she says, escape was never really an escape. That was the problem. You only stumbled from one thing into another. And so she comes back to Haifa to stay with her sister and there are all sorts of things waiting for her. You never, Absolutely. You know, yeah. It's, I think it's, it's a very common human error to think that if you change your location, you're going to change <laughs> your situation internally, right? Totally, totally. But she, she's also coming, you know, she also has these expectations of her sister, that her sister's going to mother her and look after her. It's kind of, much of the novel is, is tracking their relationship and the, the expectations they have of each other and their failure to communicate. And I, and that is in a way, you know, one of the beating hearts of the book is that sister, is that sister relationship, uh, which is a kind of maternal relationship in a way. And there's also, you know, there's great flashback sequences into childhood when 
Sonia was spending time in Haifa more regularly and had, I think, a more immediate and regular connection to the place. And I think maybe one of the most moving, if not the most moving passage in the entire book for me was when she goes to the West Bank, I believe as a teenager, and visits this young man named Rashid who has been on hunger strike. Like that sequence in the book feels like it's at the heart because it's an undeniable connection for her. She who wishes, I think, in some ways to deny her past and her connection to this place. She can't deny that. Like that boy sort of haunts her dreams. Absolutely. And plays a, plays a role in her political awakening. Yeah, it kind of at a delay he does, right? I mean, it's a, it's a pivotal moment for the sisters in the sense that Hanin, that moment is central to her, her, her narrative of commitment, you know, how she, a political awakening that is kind of focuses her on the, on the issue of Palestine. Whereas Sonia, after looking at this boy and, and having a kind of wordless connection to him, being very confused at the age of 16, she, she, leaves the West Bank and says, I never want to go back there again. And she doesn't, she doesn't ask about him later. So the story that the, yeah, he's kind of one of the ghosts of the book or one of maybe the most important ghosts in the relationship between the sisters, the sort of what happened to Rashid. So uh, in terms of context and the backdrop for this story, I believe that you set it against a real life event, the 2017 shooting of two Israeli police officers in uh what is it the noble sanctuary i think it's called the noble sanctuary by muslims and the temple mount by by jewish people so that's sort of the like the tinderbox right the political event or the the source of great tension yes i mean that was it's that's one one event in a sequence of events prior to that i mean al-aqsa mosque and the compound has been a central node in the question of sovereignty in Jerusalem. So East Jerusalem is obviously by international law illegally occupied since 1967. And Al-Aqsa Mosque and the the mosque compound, um, in this bit, just prior to that shooting, the Israeli, uh, I think it was the police had gone in with some settlers. There's always this question about who has control of the mosque and that and that area. So obviously this gives the, the optic, which I think that is always challenging for Palestinians that it's primarily a question of religion rather than a question of land. And obviously it is about sovereignty and land primarily. And obviously religion is very important there as well. But that's why it was important for me to show uh, in the protests around the imposition by the Israelis of uh, security gates around the mosque compound, which is uh, technically a violation of the so-called status quo of of holy sites, that that these two Christian sisters also participate in this, in this, um, in this, demonstration this spect- spect- spectacular demonstration actually because it's it's uh, it's not sim- simply a, a question for muslims but i i guess you know i started writing the book just after that summer and i knew i wanted the book to feature a scene of of a spectacular demonstration because the book is all about spectacle in a way that was very that was very important and and then i and i was like oh well of course it, the, the summer i started writing it there was this very spectacular demonstration where people were praying in the streets of jerusalem refusing to pass through these security gates and it was a very moving few you know period of time uh, to see to see that happening um, and people were flooding down there to join these to join these demonstrations so it seemed it seemed sort of natural to include it in a way and it's, it's an, it becomes an important moment for sonia herself where she being somebody who's very self-conscious about being an actor and her her role that she's playing or different roles that she's playing. In this case, she she sort of, she's relieved of that pressure of being an individual. She just participates in something bigger than herself. And that's kind of transformative in a moment or it, or it, it puts her in touch with something that she hasn't been in touch with so far in her life. So I read in the acknowledgements, I believe that you were thanking people who work in the theater, who served in a kind of advisory role. So I think that means you do not have a background as a stage actress. <laughs> but I, I wonder if you do. Do you have any background working in theater or acting on the stage? I've, I've been in some plays at, U, at uni, so I knew what it was like to be on a stage and learn your lines and stuff, the kind of basic the basic 
uh, knowledge of the, of the the mechanics or the rehearsal process. Um, but that was about it. I mean, I do think that you know we are very familiar. We we watch movies and we we see plays. We're familiar with with actors and with acting as a as an art form. So it's sort of um, it's sort of a familiar mode in a way. But I did do I did do research, obviously specifically speaking to practitioners of theatre in Palestine. Um, but also generally to actors, um, try to check that things were realistic or not, or, you know. <laughs> were you a good actress? Um, I think I was okay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to do a monologue, I, I open the floor to you now, if you, if you no, would like thanks. to. <laughs> so the structure of this novel, uh, like a great structuring device has to do with this staging of Hamlet and sort of takes us through the the fundamental... Uh, steps in a theatrical production, right? I mean, that's, is that accurate? Yeah. That's the way it read to me. Yeah, basically the play becomes the thing. It's sort of the plot starts to revolve around this production, the kind of ob- obstacles the cast face, the difficulties of rehearsing, the set getting dismantled and so forth, trying to get the protagonist of the play, the guy playing Hamlet, who's a pop star, who has no acting experience to learn how to act. You know, this is kind of, this becomes the, this is the drama of the book. His name's Wael. Is Wael, that how you pronounce yeah. it? Wael. Wael, yeah. Okay. So the, this story has so much to do with art and its context. And there's something funny to me. I mean, there's a lot of humor in this, uh, like the the back and forth between the various actors, uh, the absurd lengths that they have to go to just to get to rehearsal. You know, it's also something sad about it. You know, like that's the thing about this story about this place and the forces that are acting upon these people, it it gets complicated, like emotionally. (laughs) You can't always live in darkness. I think I have, I think anybody who lives long enough comes to realize this, like even when really dark stuff is happening, you can't always be operating at that frequency, right? There have to be moments of levity and there are, and then there are these moments of transcendent beauty and camaraderie and, your book does a really nice job of capturing all that. And I I think a lot about, or I had to think a lot about the play Hamlet and its particular resonances for Palestinian people. And I'm going to go back to this German theater director, Thomas Ostermeyer, who staged uh, an Arabic language performance of Hamlet, as we discussed in the West Bank, and something that he said about it that resonated with me. And he was talking about how Hamlet is about a political subversive weighing whether or not to violently oppose a corrupt and unlawful government. That's one of the things that it's about. And uh, this director, Ostermeyer, says, quote, for Palestinians, this uh, aspect of the play was unmistakable, performing this as we did in Ramallah, uh, a play which starts asking the question whether you should take up your weapons and resist you're publicly voicing a question that 80% of your audience and especially the young ones are negotiating on a daily basis. So despite the fact that, you know, historically and culturally Hamlet is obviously far removed from the West bank, it speaks across time and across place in a way that's really, really poignant. Yeah. um, Yeah. He's, and he's ambivalent. He's uncertain Hamlet. He spends much of the play kind of, uh, kind of dithering or or anxious about the act he's and there's a sort of pun on act that I'm that the novel is also negotiating you know whether to act or to act and whether those two things can be can be the same it's not it's not in Arabic that there's no pun but in, in English there is and uh so so the book does pivot on that absolutely and and the question of ghosts as well I think the ghosts of the previous generation exhorting the young to 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 follow you know to avenge them I suppose or to to follow in their footsteps definitely something that's that's also also there, as well as the other resonances of of mother relationships and father relationships that I also was playing with. But yeah, and it made it made it kind of fertile to play around with and to almost to joke around with because the cast are discussing, you know, how 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 direct an allegory it should be <laughs> of the Palestinian case. Um, and Maryam, the director, doesn't want it to be so direct. You know, she says, no, it can be ambivalent, you know, amb- ambiguous. We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't b- make it so obvious. But they're like, is, is Denmark Israel? Is Denmark Palestine? You know, all this sort of thing. Um, so. Is Gertrude yeah. Palestine? I mean, <laughs> exactly. So you just mentioned Maryam, and I, that was my next uh, thing that I wanted to get to. A delightful character, beautifully drawn. I'm sure you had fun with her. 
Yeah, yeah. She was almost she, the main character, actually. Okay, that it kind of felt that way. Like she's so vividly drawn and so dimensional, and has such a—I don't know if symbiotic is the word—but uh, you know, such a deep, like level, like multi-leveled relationship with the Sonia character, in terms of her entrenchment in Israel, her privilege, maybe within the community of Palestinians. She's connected. She has a politician brother. I believe Yael is her nephew, her cousin, right? Her cousin. Cousin. Okay, yeah. So she's got a pop star in the family. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, not the normal order of things usually. And she is very direct. She has a lovely bluntness that I, I love that. Maybe in, I think I love it in characters and in people typically, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit hard to deal with, but she's wonderful in that way. And she is running the show and making this thing happen against the odds. So I don't know, I just loved her. I loved the irrepressible nature of her. And I think one of the things that this book does in such a profound way is to draw parallels between um, political reform and theater and like theatrical production. Like both require, and you say as much in the book, they both require that people kind of participate in a shared delusion, which I think when it comes to issues around politics and national identity, it's easy to forget. Like all of this stuff is made up. These are sort of agreements that we have with one another to participate in a shared dream. And the same is true of putting on a stage play of, of Hamlet, wherever it happens to be or any, any play, right? And then you have the level of audience participation. Everybody's sort of buying in and suspending disbelief. And there's a section or a passage in the book where uh, Sonia says, bit hard to fake a dream, no? Uh, and Miriam says, you have to fake it. And I think that gets to the heart of things, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm really happy that you like Miriam so much. She, She's really the reason that, that Sonia becomes part of the play and why she stays so long in the country because she's really drawn to Mariam. She's sort of a, she finds her abrasive, or like you say, she's very blunt, but, but she also has this sense of mission, you know, saying that you, you have to fake a dream. You know, it's, she has a, has a sense of, of, uh, of, uh, of what she's striving for and that, and she's very clear about that. She doesn't have doubt and that's very attractive to Sonia. So she's drawn to her charisma and into her orbit, even while Mariam has Mariam has her own problems. You know, she has issues with the family, and it's difficult to 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 direct this play. You know, a kind of cast almost entirely of men, and she's confronting all these other obstacles. But she's she's a sort of a fearless leader in this way, and that's very enchanting to Sonia. She's also a mother, and there's a way in which Sonia is drawn to that aspect of her as well. But yeah, I mean, that's interesting. That thing about collective delusion. I don't know if that's something I necessarily thought about, but I do think that. There is a there is a way in which commitment to a cause requires not quite faking a dream, but it's about managing to be at once pessimistic and optimistic. Or I think Gramsci says pessimism of the uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. You know, you keep going even though you, you it doesn't doesn't look like there's liberation on the horizon exactly. How else do you possibly live in an environment like that unless you have, like, it, you have to have that? In the absence of that, what? What? Right, exactly. Like, how do you, yeah. how do you yeah. get through, you know? And I think uh, I can't help but measure myself against Sonia and Mariam, you know? I think I want to be more like Mariam, but I might be more like Sonia, more, <laughs> indeci more indecisive. Where do you fall on this spectrum? I don't know. I mean, I think that inevitably when you write a novel, all the characters are some extrapolation of potential parts of yourself that you are trying to engage with or investigate. Um, I think I'm probably, I'm not, I'm not Mariam, but I think that being the maker of, of an art object, I feel like I, I, I mean, a novel, not a play, obviously I'm not, it's, it's much easier to write a book on your own where, you know, I get to stage the play and that's really fun, but you know, all my actors are made up and I can make them do whatever I want, you know? Right. Um, right. So, <laughs> um, so I probably, probably most like her out of all of them in a way. Uh, although I don't, I think I'm a bit nicer than that. Yeah. I think, yeah. I like, there's this, uh, school of thought that's like, you got to show up for your life, right? You got to go out there and get your hands 
dirty and do stuff and lean into it. And when you do that, like fate might be more inclined to meet you halfway in a, in a positive sense. Mm-hmm. But then there's also this thing where it's like, if you're not really into doing something, you shouldn't do it. You should only do things that you're really excited about doing. You shouldn't just do things to do things. Mm. I'm always struggling with the tension between those two impulses. Mm. Like telling myself like, come on, Brad, just go for it. What the heck? And then also being like, I don't really want to. <laughs> I don't want to show up halfway, you know? Mm. So I feel like Miriam is somebody who just goes and has that sort of energy and that extroversion. And then somebody like Sonia might decline invitations on a more regular basis or something or yeah. live inside that indecision. Do you think that's also a distinction between maybe Marianne being a mother and Sonia not? Like a mother doesn't really get the choice to be like, I don't feel like doing it today. It's like, you just have to do it. That's just like, yes. you know, um, and I think that that's also something that's also in the mix there. Yeah, maybe that's something. Like I think maybe Sonia envies Miriam's lack of choice. Isn't it weird how human beings, <laughs> we always envy what we don't have. It's like, God, I wish I just was completely bound to my responsibilities as a mother <laughs> and had no personal agency at all. It'd be so lovely. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the title of your novel, which is drawn from Hamlet and I think a stage direction when King Hamlet is commanding his son to seek justice. Uh, it's interesting to me, as you said earlier, that Hamlet came to you later in the process mm. because it seems so central to the book. Like how much, how late? <laughs> okay. I mean, maybe not that late. I mean, like before I started writing, but in, in, mm. in the kind of conception period of the book, I, I was thought, I, well, maybe I'll do an Arabic play. Maybe I'll write my own play. You know, I kind of knew I wanted to do theater before I knew I wanted to do Hamlet, basically. But the title, the working title until the very end was something else, which was vetoed by all the people I work with. I knew it would be vetoed, but it was, I was still attached to it for the time being, which was, what was um, it? go bid the soldiers shoot, which is that the actual last line of the play. Everyone thinks it's then the rest is silence, right? Or that's the kind of, but it's in fact, then Fortinbras is about to invade, you know, the, the play really ends with this invasion scene um, or kind of, you know, incipient invasion scene. Uh, and I thought that was kind of an interesting title. But it was say wait you know, say it again. Go bid go the soldiers. Bid the soldiers shoot. Okay. Yeah. And um, that got that got next in favor of Enter Ghost. In favor of Enter Ghost. I mean, I think Enter Ghost probably is a, a more saleable title in the end. So I agreed. Okay. Well, yeah, I liked it, and I yeah. feel like I mean, there's so many different resonances um, between the title and things that happen in the book, and I think it's a good choice. And Sonia plays in the play Gertrude. Mm-hmm. And for people who either have never read Hamlet or people who haven't read it in a long time, which describes me, so I was like brushing up on my Hamlet. Gertrude is the mother of the mother of Hamlet. The mother of Hamlet, and so why that role for Sonia? I mean, that seems like a deliberate choice. I mean, Sonia is thirty-eight, so one of the things she's confronting in her career as an actor in London is that she's no longer the ingenue and that maybe possibly the window for hitting, hitting it big time uh, in her field might be, might be closing. Um, that's not always the case, obviously for, for actresses, but it is, it is a consideration, right? Um, so she's not playing Ophelia. She's playing the mother character. Um, so that's one, one element there. Another element is that she's also confronting the specter of motherhood, the role of the mother in general. So not being a mother herself, she she then plays one. And her relationship with Wael, who's the the pop star playing Hamlet, is it becomes a kind of maternal relation as well. So there are these ghosts of motherhood as well um, that are brought out by, by playing this role. Gertrude also is a very ambiguous character in the play. It's uncertain whether or not she knows what happened to her husband. And uh, she's the the victim of a lot of projection by Hamlet onto her. She doesn't actually say very much. So there's also some kind of interesting elements to the character itself there. Yeah, and the relationship between Sonia and Wael, who plays, at least for a time, Hamlet, uh, he refers to her as mother, doesn't he? He mm-hmm. calls, he like calls yeah. her mom in a kind yeah. of tongue-in-cheek way. So um, that's funny. He's a funny character in a lot of ways. He's like the one person in the cast who's truly got some fame and he's kind of the star who's drawing a lot of the interest, right? Like to yeah. the play, but he doesn't, he's stressed. He doesn't want to do, do yeah. it in the end. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the sort of, that's what's sweet about that, ambi- you know, Mariam's ambition in a way to put on this very highbrow play, which is just not going to get a massive audience. But if she puts this famous pop star in the, in the role, then she's going to draw a crowd. So she's caught in a kind of dilemma of uh, artistic integrity in a way where she has to t- turn the rehearsal rooms into a drama school for, for one yes. of her actors. It's like the Harry Styles of the West Bank, basically. Basically, right? basically. <laughs> He's a little bit inspired by a singer called Muhammad Asaf, who uh, who won Arab Idol uh, a long time ago and kind of shot to fame. Very beautiful voice. Yeah. Oh, okay. Did he ever play? He never played uh, Hamlet. Escape? It's not. It's not. It's not Muhammad Asaf, but it, but a little bit inspired by that trajectory to stardom. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. So as I mentioned earlier, the logistics of putting this play on come to be central to the storyline of the book going back and forth from what is it is the territory called the 48 or is it the people who live there i forget the exact terminology For, you use 48 kind of, is often how it's often how palestinians will refer to that to to to, to that area yeah okay well, so, I mean, but, but it's generally Haifa, known as israel proper you know in terms of well, even though the borders haven't been declared so yeah Right. So going back and forth from Haifa to the West Bank, essentially, mm. for rehearsals. And uh, I believe the play itself is to be staged in Bethlehem. Do I have that? Am I yeah, initially, that right? yeah. yeah. Initially, yeah. And like in, in the shadow of the this wall, this divider wall, mm-hmm. essentially. And I couldn't help but like shake my head and marvel at the same time as I was imagining having to go through all that just to put on freaking Shakespeare play you know like it's an it's an insane amount of logistical hurdles and weird pressures and dangers to have to endure to do something that should not be so difficult and Miriam who again is sort of like the, the heroine of the book to me is she says if we let disaster stand in our way we will never do anything every day here is a disaster so like irrepressible and inspiring but also really sad something like that to mm. have to you know to say something like that and to have to grapple with that line yeah i mean i think you can say palestinians have a good sense of humor i think it's very you know there's a lot of what you know this laughter continues in the in the face of disaster um, and people still make things people are still making art people are still gathering people are still doing things people are still living and that's something that i think always gives me sucker you know going there i haven't heard many any stories in recent years of theater plays in particular facing with facing obstacles like the books stages i suppose but there were some cases in the in the 70s and 80s where you know plays had to go through the military censor sometimes they were interrupted mid-scene by the army if they went off script you know there was this real sense in that period that the that theater could be kind of a powerful tool to rouse a crowd you know to to get the masses to demonstrate or to or to awaken uh uh, an audience to the conditions that they're living in um and I, I think there's something quite interesting about considering theater having that having that kind of power which i don't think really we have anymore i think that that era has passed so it's also sort of evoking some nostalgia for the for the heyday of of powerful political theater yeah you know i was going to get to this later but now seems a good time uh, based on what you just said but there is something kind of anachronistic and wonderfully um, classic about your prose style and how lush and vivid and detailed it is. Like it's, it has like a nine, I called it in my head anyway, kind of a 19th century vibe. Like you really, uh, like it, there's a lot of like really strong vision in this book. You really bring the place to life and I don't know, just distinguishes itself. I don't see writing like this all that often am i barking up the wrong tree is this are your influences in any way uh along these lines do you have a love for kind of older fiction that works in this kind of mode well thank you for the compliment i mean i i I read widely and deeply and you know i read old books i i think that you know the 19th century novel or the early 20th century novel was more of an influence for my first book and because this one is written in the first person it allows me to it was became more slack and kind of vocal and more relaxed in a way less focused on the sentence as a unit I think I was quite focused on the sentence as a unit and what prose can do in terms of marking beats of time in a scene in my first book and you could do different things with the first person you can 
you can uh, you can move through time and space more fluidly in quite interesting ways uh, without it feeling um, you know confusing I think because it's all tied together with the eye but I mean yeah I don't I think there's always hard question to answer uh, the question of influence I think that you're influenced quite unconsciously and I do love beautiful prose um, so there are, I, I suppose that I I try to I try to write beautifully to the best of my ability um, because I think it's very important for for vivacity actually for for creating something that that strikes the reader strongly that allows them to see clearly um, that allows them to remain in scene and to feel in scene those the sort of intensity of of um, of the senses are something that I do focus on in in my prose I would say well yeah and I think for a reader like myself who's a Western reader who doesn't have a ton of uh, personal experience in this place, though I do have my very wonderful four-day weekend in Israel <laughs> to reflect on, <laughs> where I went over for book research. Uh, I've, and it was a lovely place. And I should say, too, something that your novel uh, portrays very well is it's a tiny place, really. For as outsized of a role as it plays in the global imagination, Israel, you can drive around the whole country in, what, five or six hours? Mm-hmm from one end to the next, and you're going from Haifa to the West Bank in, rel- in a relatively short drive, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, a relatively short drive. Uh, so these are very tiny distances, but they they really matter a lot. You know, like a lot can change in a few kilometers in mm-hmm. Israel. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and its significance is, is also profound in the region, historically, Palestine in the Palestinian struggles also very important symbolically for other struggles around the world, um, and I think that, that so it does play this sort of outsized role. But it is a it is definitely remarkable given how small the place is that it's so both so um, like you say that it occupies such a um, such a large space. But that I mean, and that is also because of the the massive role that America plays there. So um, it's very much in the in the American consciousness in its different different incarnations although quite specific incarnations. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, uh, I think, you know, another, we've touched on this a little bit, but another aspect of the ghost metaphor that carries throughout the book on all sorts of different levels has to do with Sonia and her family history. Uh, and I think kind of like, like an immediate, in an immediate sense, her family is fractured in the, both her parents have split up, but they also live all over the world. She lives in London. Her father lives in London. Her mother lives in, I believe, Marseille. And her sister lives in Haifa. Mm-hmm. So all of their shared time together is a kind of ghost, you know, in mm-hmm. her past. And then there is also the issue of family history and family secrets, which endure and she's navigating those when she's on the ground in Israel during this summer that you cover in the book, where she's learning in bits and pieces about internal family conflict, about roles that family members played in the Palestinian resistance, about things that her own father had to endure, traumas that he endured, which he never really discussed with her. I got to say, I loved her father as a character too. There's something sort of lovely about your rendering of him. But there's also something tragic about him because he's carrying really deep trauma that he's never really shared with her and that has got to be so central to his identity. There's always something tragic to me when that happens between people who are so close, you know, and who share such a strong family bond, obviously, that someone would carry that sort of thing around secretly and that something that's so central to their identity would be unknown to their own child. You know what I'm Mm. saying? Mm. I think it's actually quite common in Palestinian, that generation of Palestinians who leave, you know, it's often then the the next generation that want to go back or the kind of, there's a sense of wanting to assimilate into the West or to, to forget the past, you know, a sense of overriding despair over a, a youth of, of commitment and activity. It's actually, you know, something, yeah, I was interested in depicting that. I like, I like the father character as well. Yeah. 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 He's a good guy. <laughs> Baba. Yeah. And then there's uh, uncles and aunts uh, that, I guess, what, had lived in Haifa and now live in the West Bank. 
yeah. forgive me, I'm totally blanking on the name. I, there's, I, I do this often with characters. There's Nadia and uh, Rima, the two sisters. Say again? Nadia and Rima are the two sisters. Nadia okay. and Rima, yeah. Yeah, but then there's, isn't there is an uncle? Jad. Jad, okay, that's what, yeah. he's the surgeon. Yes, exactly. He doesn't okay. get on with he, the dad. They've, they've got yeah. kind of like unidentified conflict or kind of competition between them, a sort of patriarchal competition between the two men. Right. And yeah. she goes to visit him. I liked him as well. Yeah. And, uh, and the ant character. But interesting that someone would be living in the 48 and then like retire to the West Bank. Mm. Like that migratory pattern is sort of interesting. But I mm -hmm. guess it happens like maybe yeah, especially I mean, yeah. in certain generations yeah i mean um yeah you do have it's like a it's it's sort of complicated in terms of documents and uh you know there are people from jerusalem i suppose who are worried about you know keeping their jerusalem ids or you know there's certain so they they need to kind of keep a presence in jerusalem otherwise you know they 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 put that status in danger but people do move you know palestinians do move around there's still strong connections between the communities living in these different geographies and uh, and there and there is movement even though you know those big signs when you enter the west bank say uh this is illegal if you have a if you for israeli citizens to enter here but it obviously doesn't apply to the palestinians with israeli citizenship hmm. in a sense so you yourself are part of the palestinian diaspora you are, were raised in england mm -hmm. as was yeah. sonia so you share that in common mm -hmm. yeah i'm interested to know how often or if at all you go back like do you get to go back and and visit do you have family there is this something that you're drawing on in this book it seems likely but maybe not yeah i mean i i do try to go back i try to go back once a year more or less and to kind of um i i still have relatives there and i have a lot of friends so i feel connected to the place in that way and it's important sort of plays an important role in my life i suppose but uh but my, my family's from Nablus and the West Bank. Although I did have my, my grandfather uh, is was from Haifa as well. So I did have a kind of Haifa connection, I suppose. So a particular interest in that city. Well, it's a lovely book and there's a lot to it. Like it's one of those books that is operating on many different levels, often simultaneously. It's like I said, vi so super vividly drawn. And I love reading novels that take me out of the United States. So thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm very tired of being in the United States in some senses. So it's always a delightful departure, uh, even if I'm taken to a place that has, you know, a, a lot of challenges and difficulties and tragedies uh, embedded into it. Like it was a great education in that sense, though I know that was not your primary intention. It's also just a really beautifully told story. And it forced me to have to brush up on my Shakespeare, which is never a bad thing for somebody to have to do. Do you have any education? Like, did you, I guess growing up in England, you obviously have mm. Shakespeare education, but I, like formally at university or something, did you? Yeah, you get sort of Shakespeare shoved down your throat. Although I think that, you know, when I was at uni, um, because I studied literature, there was one paper in our final exams that was a Shakespeare paper. And I think I totally flopped that one. I found actually Shakespeare really hard to write about. Um, and I ended up writing an essay that just counted the storms in Shakespeare plays in a panic in, in the exam room. So it's just a, a, a list. <laughs> of every storm that I could think of. It was a disaster. <laughs> I took a Shakespeare course in college too. And I mean, I was such a disinterested undergraduate student, like shamefully, shame. I just, <laughs> I don't know. I was Youth skimming is everything. Young. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Precisely. So it's nice to revisit all that. And I always ask my guests if they are working on anything else. It's the cruel question at the end. You're celebrating the publication of this one and I'm immediately asking you what else you have, but is there something in the works? Yeah, I'm I'm working on a novel um, about uh, two women, uh, a Lebanese diplomat and an Indian photojournalist who meet at a conference in Indonesia in the 50s. It's sort of about non-alignment and third worldism against the backdrop of non-alignment and third worldism is the relationship between these two women so that's that's what i'm working on at the moment it was a, it was an important conference that happened called the bandung conference it was sort of uh part of the invention of the third world as an idea that was a project oh so what is non-alignment yeah. forgive me for not knowing 
Non-alignment is, um, uh, so in the period of the Cold War, the non-aligned countries were those which wanted to have nothing to do with either power block of the Soviet Union or the USA. So oh. they wanted to, they, they saw non-alignment as a sort of central uh, way of maintaining world peace. And in fact, they played a pretty important role in nuclear disarmament. So it is, you know, even though the history of, 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 of this particular conference and some of these you know, diplomatic struggles isn't isn't sort of mainstream in the West. I would say they were actually played a massive role in um, in the course of global history. So I'm kind of interested in in uh, in looking at and and you know a lot of them are coming out of, of anti-colonial struggles as well. But of course, it's a story about two women. So this is the sort of backdrop that's infusing their relationship. Well, I can't help but note that you are again working at least somewhat from historical source material like you were you know the parisian was very much dealing with history and i imagine had uh, had had you doing a lot of research uh, obviously with interghost you have to dig into uh, palestinian history and the israeli palestinian conflict and its history and now you're going back to this what was the name of the conference again it's called the bandung conference or the, the or the asia africa conference actually it was called but it's popularly known as the bandung conference so is this where you typically start? Like, will there be some sort of historical event that you build a narrative out of or something like that catches your imagination? I don't know. I guess I just really, I, I'm, I'm kind of nerdy and I get excited by by history. And I, there's so much that hasn't been explored. There's so much history that doesn't get properly recorded or, you know, either it's not archived or it's in the archive, but it doesn't get mainstream or it's sort of niche or there's so much to learn. And it comes from a learning impulse, I suppose. Maybe it also comes from a fear of the present, I don't know, or a sense that I can understand <laughs> the present if I go back. Or, um, Yeah, but it, is, it definitely is an impulse in me. Maybe, it's, maybe I like to make writing novels kind of scholarly in a way, or maybe I like it to be something other than simply making scenes and drama, for there to be also some kind of engagement with, with, um, with that historical predicament. Yeah, I mean, there's like, a, there's like automatic stakes, right? Like there's, this is what I always envy when I read historic, like really explicitly historical fiction is that like, wow, the stakes are just there. And also the narrative is there, the shape mm. of the narrative, at least it obviously has to be filled in by the writer, but a lot of times you can find a structure to a narrative, maybe not in a one for one way, but it can be extracted from historical circumstances or can fuel the, the construction of it. So I, I guess like I'm secretly always curious about writer's strategies for how they make their books <laughs> yeah oh yeah you maybe know. it's it's prefab plots if you go to history you've got some prefab plots so that's that's another good well, thing <laughs> it is but like like you say it's it's vital work because there are all these narratives mm. like left in the dustbin of history many of which are very vital and instructive and fascinating that nobody touches or knows about and so kudos to you for finding them and kind of breathing life into them in this way because for somebody like me you know it provides me with entree it reminds me of how little i know <laughs> uh, which is never a bad thing so i wish you well on it i thank you so much for taking the time i know you're here in the states on tour and running around so many thanks for carving out some time to talk with me congratulations on enter ghost and best of luck to you with all that you have going thank you so much for having me Okay, guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Isabella Hamad. Her new novel is called Enter Ghost, available now from Grove Press in North America. Isabella, as far as I can tell, has no web presence, no website, no social media. I could be wrong, but if I am, I could not find it. I looked. Once again, her new novel is called Enter Ghost. It's more important anyway. Read the book. It's called Enter Ghost, available from Grove. Go get your copy right now if you had a good experience if you like this show i hope you will consider supporting it for as little as one dollar a month over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash other ppl pod if you want to get another people t-shirt you can do that at other ppl.com if you would like to sign up for my free once a week email newsletter please do that at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find the show. 
Subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. It's free. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Email me if you have thoughts that you would like to share. The address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to read my book, it is now one year old. It's a novel, my latest novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So go get that. Help the book celebrate its first year of existence. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Samantha Irby. Get ready for this one. She has a new book of essays coming out called Quietly Hostile. I had a lot of fun with Sam Irby. So stay tuned. Thank you.